Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nate Erskine-Smith. The Prime Minister kneeled at an anti-racism protest and then declared in the House of Commons that we will do everything we can to eradicate racism. Well, the Parliamentary Black Caucus last week published a roadmap to that goal. It includes calls for better race-based data collection, police and criminal justice reform, representative public appointments, support for Black Canadian heritage and cultural contributions, and a focus on economic prosperity. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Greg Fergus, Liberal MP and Chair of the Parliamentary Black Caucus. Greg, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. The Parliamentary Black Caucus, which you chair, has a number of members from different parties, from both the House and the Senate. And the recent statement you published touched on a number of issues. But first, how are you able to secure the support of over 150 parliamentarians from both chambers? How did that come about? During the whole COVID crisis, we were working towards trying to get some economic measures for the Black community because we heard about how the measures that we had as a government had introduced really weren't capturing uh, the Black community. Black had faced formal obstacles to getting uh, loans from mainstream banks. So uh, a lot of uh, Black businesses uh, end up going through informal networks to get money, borrowing money from friends uh, or from, from other businesses. We were working on a project to try to get some economic measures done uh, and that was specifically targeted towards the black community and then those videos hit you know it was, it was tough it was tough uh, to see that and in spite of the trauma the caucus members said okay well look let's just lay it all out we've been meeting we've been working with groups we've advanced policies we've got policies accepted in the last mandate uh, but we still need to go further and we know largely what the issues were so we had a, a series of meetings where we sort of laid it all out and they fell into the buckets that we had previously identified. So uh, writing the letter actually after five years of experience wasn't hard to do. I held the pen to do the drafts, but we set up a small group, uh, a reference group, because you can't write a, a letter with 25 people. Senator Rosemary Moody from the Independent Senators Group uh, and Matthew Green from the NDP. And we wanted to do that that way just to make sure that it was fair. We had a gender representation. We had made sure that it was multi-partisan so it wasn't seen as a liberal initiative. It was really an interesting process as to um, how we all came together. We had a, we had two full meetings to try to get people into the world. And, and, and Nate, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Rather than asking everybody to sign on to everything because then you'll, we'll never get agreement, we'll miss the moment, and we wouldn't have the impact that, that we actually ended up having. We came up with a solution that I said, look, can you live with 90% of what, what was written? If you can, then let's not try to make the perfect letter. Let's get a letter that's going to get out. Uh, and so anybody who signed on, signed on to the, that nine, at least 90% rule. From there, that allowed us to get that consensus and, and to move forward. You say you don't want to miss the moment. And it does seem we see demonstrations of thousands of Americans and Canadians across North America. We see real calls for action. And it's a moment we need to seize, obviously. And we can speak about the progress in the last parliament. And there was some significant progress. But I think we can also agree. And in the letter, there's a call for criminal justice reform that we previously committed to. So I, I think we can agree that we didn't see the action in the last parliament that some of us might have wanted to see. How how do we ensure that we don't miss the moment, this moment that has been brought about by such tragedy in many ways, but that can hopefully lead to meaningful changes? Nate, let's, let's be honest with the people who are listening here. Um, 
we know that people can be motivated for things for a certain period of time. And then it's just by force of other issues coming into the news, it moves a little bit more into the background. For for Black people, for Black Canadians, people of colour, uh, we've seen these moments happen before. And usually it has to do with some case of, of violence that has really just shocked people. This is different, I will say. If there was any doubt about the existence of systemic racism, of anti-Black racism, of the fact that racism kills, I think those doubts have been erased. And maybe it was because we were in COVID, maybe because we're all isolating and we're seeing, we're, we're a lot more on social media and the presence of video. It was so, uh, three videos. Uh, in short order, then followed by anti-Indigenous videos coming from our own country. It made non-people of color just sort of wake up and just sort of say, well, what the hell is that? Yeah, I just watched a murder. And it wasn't just any kind of murder. I mean, first of all, we watched a murder that people got away with for two and a half months. That was Ahmad uh, Arbery. It's all what the messages that those videos sent that were so damaging. Then we saw the Central Park case with Amy Cooper threatening and weaponizing supposedly a neutral institutional body, an Afro-American, and that was pretty damning in itself. And then we saw the eight minute and 46 second video of a police officer nonchalantly killing a man, a black man. The messages that came out of that were just devastating. And Nate, you and I were, were pretty close to, to seatmates. Our last names are so close. We, over the last five years, we've more often than not been uh, one desk away. You know, I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. I'd experienced great uh, despondency because of the, the bigger message. On the first video, on the Arbery video, these guys got away with murder for two and a half months. And some people might say, and I've seen it on Twitter, saying, you know, how stupid is the, the person who videotaped it to keep that videotape? The problem is I made that calculation immediately, and I know a lot of Black Canadians did. And it's not that he's stupid to keep it. It's that he felt that he could do it with impunity. This was not something that you would hide. There was no shame. What does that say, right? The fact that Detective Chauvin could keep a knee on uh, George Floyd's neck with witnesses standing up imploring him to get off the guy's neck. He can't breathe. Hearing from Mr. Floyd saying, I can't breathe. And still without uh, almost any reaction, without any really thought, you know, that the messages that came from that was just so devastating. So I think Canadians, non-Black Canadians, they said, we don't want this. This is not right. I mean, this is so wrong on so many levels. And you see the wonderful uh, support of people going out to those protests, to the rallies, making that point. And I don't think they necessarily know what they want to have done. They, they do look to their uh, Black brothers and sisters or their Indigenous brothers and sisters and say, you know, we want to be helpful. We want to help. We want to, you know, what can we do? What we can do is not as important as the fact that they've now priced it in. They now said, we want something done. We want something significant done. We don't know what it's what it should be and, and don't poll us on it. <laughs> Just do it. And we can't expect individual Canadians to figure out the specific solutions the government should implement, but we can expect Canadians to demand solutions to particular problems that matter to them. And here we have now not only anti-Black racism, but anti-Indigenous. Right, anti-Indigenous too. After Regis's tragic death here in Toronto, we see Chantelle Moore, a young Indigenous woman killed by police. Then we see police violence against Chief Allen, and on and on. The racism in the RCMP, I mean, when we do see the use of force, 
we see predominantly these incidents are against indigenous people in Toronto, the disproportionate application of the law against black men in our drug laws and beyond. And, 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 and Nate, I know you, you and I've had these conversations and it's also, it's just more than police. It's not just an issue of police. It's not just an issue of sentencing or, 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 or prisons. There's a whole suite of things that go into this, right? That we have to take a look at. And your letter rightly identifies criminal justice as one important piece, but also identifies four other critical pieces, better race-based data, elevating black voices and representation to the upper echelons of decision-making in this country, which will make a long-term difference in a serious way, recognizing economic and artistic contributions of black Canadians and economic prosperity. Now, it's not often you see 160 parliamentarians, many cabinet ministers sign on to a letter like this. When you look at the large number of calls to action in this letter, what do you identify as the top priority? So I get this, I get that question a lot. You'll hear me out. So obviously, I think disaggregating data is important because that's a gift that we'll keep on giving. That allows us to to measure the efficacy of our policies to see if there are differential effects on on different communities. The assumption is, of course, with good faith, that when we discover those differentials, that we would start examining why do they exist and addressing those issues and to trying to resolve them. Right, uh, so we can bring things back to the level that would be acceptable. That would be really important. But I refuse to say there's one thing we should do first or there's one thing that we should focus our energy on because why is it that blacks are more often stopped arrested remanded and imprisoned with longer sentences i might add three to four times their demographic weight in the population when studies have shown that all things being equal blacks are no more likely to commit a crime than non-blacks why is it that indigenous peoples are seven to eight times more likely to do that. I mean, we thought it was bad for blacks. It's, it's, you know, it's twice as bad uh, for indigenous people. What goes into those, those issues that lead to those differential effects? And I think the, end, the, the answer is, is that there's a lot of things, a lot of unconscious bias which goes in. Small little thing when I was in high school, you know, what's the first thing that you know, a gym teacher says to me? You know, you know, I need you on my basketball team, right? You know, you don't know me right? It's a lousy basketball player, just by the way. And perhaps I never developed a skill because I felt that there was an expectation for me to do that just because of the color, color of my skin. And I'm, I'm at heart, I guess, a little bit of a rebel, right? You know, why do we have those images of black men being dangerous or a physicality of black men or the sexuality of black men? What has led to those things? And I think that's why we need that, those suite of, of actions and not just focus on one thing. Because uh, if you just focus on one, you're missing all the other issues that actually led to the attitudes in the first place that, that got reflected in the justice and, and, uh, and public security issues. When we look at the criminal justice calls in the letter, some are straightforward, ending mandatory minimum penalties, which we know have a disproportionate effect on black and indigenous people and are unconstitutional in many respects. We also know, though, that the biggest impact policies aren't ultimately criminal justice related because that's going to be the hardest place to solve these problems in many ways. That's that's downstream, <laughs> right? There's a lot of upstream things that we got to deal with. And when we look upstream, the caucus has called for economic prosperity, largely through investments in black owned businesses. I take it that that 
call was modeled on existing systems to support female entrepreneurs that our government put in place? Very much so. I was I was never as pleased as I was uh, back in April when I saw that uh, we came out with some measures to help Indigenous businesses. Because I knew, you know, I think we all know that they're probably, you know, the first ones that are going to you know, get hit by the economic slowdown of, caused by the pandemic. And so I was so, so pleased on that. And it, it dovetailed with the things that Black Caucus had been trying to push for to have measures which were directed at the Black community. So I saw that as a, you know, we've opened that door. So let's, let's go through it. We opened that door in supporting uh, women entrepreneurs. Let's go through it, right? The difficult part, to be frank, is when you hear from our public servants saying, well, we're not sure. We don't have the data. If you don't measure it, you don't have the data. If you don't have the data, then we can't make the policy responses. Now, here's some data we do have. And Also a question of economic prosperity that I didn't see as emphasized in the letter. So if you layer on a map of COVID cases in Toronto, for example, over a map of poverty in our city, there are the same concentrations. And we know that poverty disproportionately impacts Black and Indigenous Canadians. And I know a number of people have recently shared resources for people to read, listen, watch, and educate ourselves about systemic racism and the history and legacy of injustice. I've read a number of materials, and Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here is powerful. He, he doesn't talk about police so very much, but he keeps coming back to the idea of economic justice. When slavery ends and segregation is being ended, he doesn't see the necessary reparations and economic justice necessary to rectify past wrongs. How can we expect to see equality and dignity when communities in our countries have been disadvantaged through state policies without that kind of economic justice? And so don't we need to focus our efforts on those kinds of income supports that are a means towards that economic justice? Shouldn't that be a key piece of economic prosperity and equality of opportunity going forward? You and I read the same material, and it has proven to be true over and over again when I, when I, when I look at many different situations across, uh, across our country. So, Nate, I, I think one of the interesting things in terms of the COVID response, and I certainly your podcasts covered this issue, but we did in terms of income support, Given that I expect that this pandemic will will last longer than we we ever hoped for, when we did those basic income supports, I think we're on to something. If you if you catch my drift, uh, which has been helpful to the Black community, it's helpful in reducing poverty. I and mean, we've seen that we've seen that with the Canada Child Benefit, which has made such a a great change for so many people. It's made a real difference in, in reducing poverty. You know, the services academics will be studying this for a while because I think it has had an incredible difference. Just this morning, went for a run, came back. The newspaper guy drives by to deliver the newspapers in the neighborhood and he stops and we start chatting. And he said, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I might, I might not be so favorable of, uh, of, of the liberals and, and Trudeau, but boy, I will always be grateful for the CERB. It saved his, his life. I think this is bigger than we than we appreciate. I wonder because there is this dual moment in time. Many Canadians are standing up and saying we want action to address systemic racism and police violence, and we're not going to accept the status quo. We want action. But at the same time, there's also a desire for change when it comes to income supports. And people have seen that our existing social safety net wasn't fit for purpose. And I hope that as we progress 
through and on the outside of the pandemic that these two moments coalesce for something real in terms of poverty reduction and a real strong social safety net. I've stopped using the term recovery because I think implicit in the term is means that we want to build back the way things were. I don't think any sane person would design the system that we ended up having. And so I, I, I think we need to build back better. And I think that goes back again to the issue of how we treat each other and, and what these what these protests and rallies have meant. You know, Nate, as much as I was brought down by those videos, the thing that really served as a bomb to my to my spirit was seeing so many non-black Canadians participate and all over the place. You know, they they there have been rallies where there've been no black people <laughs> or, or no indigenous people present. And wow, you know, that that really that feels good to know that people have said that's not my vision of my country or my world, and we need to do better. And we've talked about how this goes beyond policing, but the protests we've seen and the correspondence we largely receive is focused on the police and the call to defund the police, which as a slogan, a number of people maybe can try to dismiss. But when you look under the hood and see what it means, we know that funds can be better spent in many cases by addressing poverty, mental health, making sure that there are the social supports necessary for people in the first place. And at the federal level, we saw a motion from the NDP to review the RCMP budget, invest in non-police, non-violent interventions. I don't know where the conversation goes from here, but it certainly seems as if we should review that RCMP budget and determine if funds can be better spent elsewhere. And I think that was probably the first point on the statement by uh, Black parliamentarians. You know, many Black voices have called for defunding or demilitarizing the police. What they are saying is precisely the way you put it. Let me, let me be, let me be uh, gentle on this one. Poor police officers are called to do protecting people from those who were a menace to us, and you want that. But you want them to be addiction counsel addiction counselors. You want them to be mental health workers. You want them to be social workers. You want them to be peace off. I mean, you can't have them do everything. It's just it doesn't make sense. There are professionals who do this, who are mental health experts, who are uh, addiction specialists, who are social workers, and we need to. Uh, rather than putting everything on the police and then creating these monstrous uh, budgets, we need to say, stick to your core capabilities and we'll get the people perhaps cheap, more cheaply uh, to do the, the work that they should be called to do. And then we need them to coordinate because obviously if somebody's, you know, is, is, is totally on a, on, a, on a, you know, dangerously high. Uh, and you need a, a addiction specialist, you do need to make sure that the situation is safe before somebody goes in. So there's a required coordination, but that should not be done by a service whose core competency is not that. It doesn't make sense. You know, I'm, I'm not going to ask my uh, tennis pro to uh, do an appendectomy on me, right? You know, I, I want the right person uh, to do that kind of work. And hopefully get to a place where we will never see a death at a wellness check Again, it's incomprehensible that we see police shootings in these cases where the individuals who are in need of assistance are being shot by police. I mean, I don't know the full facts of every case, but if we did have a better system where different resources were deployed, we wouldn't have the deaths that we've seen. One of the great answers, which we got was from Mark Miller saying, you know, he just 
it's beyond him how uh, somebody could be calling for a wellness check and ends up ends up dead. That kind of discussions, those type of uncomfortable questions, we've got to start asking. It also seems to me, not only do you aim to deliver social services and ensure the police aren't trying to do those things, but there are other components as well. Obviously, a focus on demilitarization, but we also look at the laws on the books, mandatory minimum penalties, but also some crimes on the books in and of themselves. And I've been beating the drum to change our drug laws for some time. Not only do our drug laws contribute to the health crisis and the thousands of deaths in the opioid crisis, but they also contribute to the disproportionate criminalization of black and indigenous people. They were born out of racist policies, applied today in a very unequal way. And I know the PM has said, now's not the time, now's not the time every time this comes up. But surely now is the time. When you take a look at what was done in Portugal, it's very fascinating. But of course, everybody focuses on the decriminalization of all drugs there. The issue that doesn't get as much play, I know you've, you've raised it and you know this, but I say this to, uh, to, to the people who are listening. It was the efforts to put on to deal with people to get them off of drugs, get them not addicted anymore. Those are the efforts that actually made the difference. But what they did that was within a framework of saying, we're not going to imprison somebody because they have whatever drug that they're consuming. What we're going to do is that we're going to provide them with the right and then the appropriate help to get them off of it. That's back to that, you know, downstream upstream approach to policymaking. You want to, you want to get us upstream as much as possible so that you're not, you know, trying to fish out bodies out of, uh, out of the, out of the river. It's an, it's an idea that needs to be, needs to be talked about. I interviewed Professor Owusu Bempa from the University of Toronto. He's an expert in race, crime, criminal justice. And he said in the eighties, when there was a crackdown on the war on drugs, in some Toronto penitentiaries, the black inmate population increased by over 3,000%. It just makes your head explode. On, on the moments when I'm not so even keeled, I sometimes say, you know, when we're talking about crack cocaine, let's use the law and order approach. Talk about opioid crisis, and all of a sudden we need compassion. I agree we do need compassion, but it, it's interesting to look at the racial profile of, of both those groups. And most Canadians never been to a jail. Nate, you and I have the right as a member of as members of Parliament to visit any jail at any time. And so, shortly after uh, getting elected in 2015, I went to go visit the maximum security prison, the medium security prison, and the minimum one, all in one location in Prince Albert. Everyone should go visit the prison because you'll realize two things: a) we do a lousy job at rehabilitating prisoners, and b) as much as possible as public policy, we should not put people in prisons unless they represent a serious threat to us. You don't put them in having a bag of pot. That doesn't make any sense. Now, as I mentioned, we've seen a disproportionate effect on racialized Canadians here in Toronto in the course of the COVID crisis and the impact of the pandemic. We also see outside of Toronto certain farms, meat processing plants. We see huge outbreaks, whips through the workers, migrant workers. They are not white. Is that a conversation that you think can be taken up in the course of this larger conversation on anti-black racism and systemic racism? I mean, these are the most vulnerable of vulnerable people. Is that a conversation that took place at at the caucus meeting? So it it did come up uh, a couple of times, as as you might recall. We really focused our attention on the plight of, of black Canadians. 
because that is our core competency as, as, as a caucus. But I think in getting to those issues and to resolving those issues, to be taking a look at, at how we can make sure that Black Canadians take their full and rightful place as full citizens, I think that almost automatic uh, leads us to other discussions about how we're treating other racialized groups, uh, people of color, how we're treating uh, migrant workers. One of the things I'm proud about as Canada as a concept, and I'm not a lawyer, is, is a concept that the moment you step foot on our soil, you're covered fully by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom, by our constitution, which I think is a beautiful document which encourages us to to be better people. I'm proud of that. There's no, there are no two classes of citizens in, in that regard. Well, then if we're proud of that, then we need to act in consequence of that, of that pride. These conversations will lead to those conversations. And, and the pandemic in so many ways has really exposed uh, the fault lines and the cracks in the system. It's allowed us to see it up close. And we've discovered, uh, all of a sudden discovered how important people who really keep the glue of society together, the essential workers who work on our farms, who work uh, stacking our shelves, who work as personal care uh, workers in our seniors' homes, bus drivers, you know, I mean, the garbage collectors. The pandemic has shown has shone a spotlight on all of this. And like I said, I don't think any rational person would would purposely build the society as it has come to has come to to be. So I think that as we build back better, it forces us to say, let's let's take a look at these issues and let's 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 do better. And at the federal level, on the issue of essential workers, at least, we could lead with the $15 per hour minimum wage we promised in our platform. We then tell provinces to step up. I mean, we've just lived through a crisis where we've seen just how critical so many otherwise low-paid workers are. So let's work towards a living wage on the outside of this pandemic. This is where you've made a big difference. I mean, just the, the Canada workers benefit. I mean, you played a big role in, in having that come to light uh, before the last election. And that's made a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. It's that kind of thinking that we need. Now, you saw the Prime Minister Neil attending the protest. Were you right beside him? I was, I was with him. I was right beside him. Well, one person over. And has he responded to the letter? Is there a sense of how we move forward from here? Yeah, yeah. We've had a, a number of conversations and, and nothing's official until it's done. But I really saw a receptivity and openness and a lot of the issues actually we had been working together on in previous meetings throughout this year to go further than the actions that we took in uh, in, in the first mandate. This has been a work in progress. I think the, the moment calls, of course, for us to, to accept accelerate that and, uh, and to have a, a suite of things to, to come forward. I hope that he would con- he would consider doing that. I, I certainly know that uh, he feels that way. And, and I certainly know that, you know, mostly most parliamentarians feel that way. And you're right to say we're building on the progress we've made. It's not, certainly not to say we didn't make progress in the last part. We made a lot of progress. Uh, and, and if you don't mind, I can just say a number of things. Uh, first of all, we let the UN uh, committee to come in and take a look at what the state of, of, of Black people of African descent were, because the previous government had refused them entry into Canada. Uh, if there's not an example of systemic discrimination, that's it. They issued the report. It was a tough report, and the government immediately started acting on it. We've done things like, first of all, adopt the report, adopt the decade. We made investments in two federal budgets, matters directly for Black Canadians. It's never been done. Not, it wasn't done once, but it was done in two subsequent budgets. We've 
done the symbolic things like put Viola Desmond's face on, on a Canadian banknote, being the first Canadian woman, a black woman on a Canadian banknote. We have moved on mental health for issues for blacks because we know that racism and discrimination eats at your sense of self in both large and small ways. We've started to make the move on disaggregated data, and there's been some progress on that front, and we need to go further and wider. We've done uh, a number of aspects supporting community, black community organizations to making sure that they have that stable environment to provide, again, to help the community help itself, because government can't do it all, and nor should government do it all. But there are a lot of really great community organizations that need that support. So we started that process. We could do more on that. All of these things, have we have a good track record. We have moved the yardsticks. The moment now calls us to do more. And we are well equipped in many ways to do more. I mean, not only are Canadians waking up and having this moment of truth and reconciliation with respect to the discrimination and racism against black communities, but we also see near the end of the last parliament, an anti-racism secretariat funding for the anti-racism strategy, which started last year in many respects. And with that in place, we should be better prepared to tackle these issues going forward. We also saw a GBA plus analysis that has been part of our budgets for many years now, likely helped to lead to the budget investments that you describe. There are some difficult issues in criminal justice with conservatives obviously hitting us as soft on crime every chance they get. But those challenges may also fall away now that there's a different and powerful impetus to address them. Let's start being smart on crime. There are so many things which are involved in that criminal act. Let's get at it uh, so that we don't have that problem, uh, you know, that downstream problem later on. And, and the only tool which the conservatives seem to be keen on doing is just, you know, locking people up. And it's probably a good place to close because smart on crime, you could easily define as not investing so many dollars in policing but investing directly in community supports. Lower economic activity. We're not creating prosperity to the potential that we should be creating. And there's so many things. Uh, and, and then that also leads into provincial issues. But, you know, how do we deal with kids in schools? And we know the studies out of Toronto, which talks about the black kids, indigenous kids are, are just more focused on. They're more subject to disciplinary action. They are more detentions, less, uh, less streaming into, into advanced uh, placement classes. All these things, if, if we don't get it right early, costs us so much later on. So let's make these changes. Let's make these attitudinal changes. Let's make these smaller investments early on, which can lead to a whole, you know, in short order, you know, a whole different uh, and more prosperous uh, country. And it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, I enjoyed our virtual hybrid parliament and working from home and see my family more. But I have to say, I also didn't fully appreciate how much I would miss the people I sit so very close to in the house. I get used to seeing Greg smile. I mean, whatever is going on in his day, he is the most positive person in the house. So, Greg, it's so nice to connect directly in this way, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to see you, too. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNA.